welcome to another edition of Storytelling on Orchard Street. I'm your host, Pete Salamita. We're in the podcast studios of P&T Knitwear Bookstore. It's a fantastic bookstore in the heart of uh, the Lower East Side on Orchard Street, of course. Come here and check it out. Great events, big selection of books. But we're here to talk to my guest, Bruce Whitaker. Bruce E. Whitaker's poetry collection, Good Housekeeping, will be out in 2024 from Poets Wear Prada. His debut collection, The Elk in the Glade, was a Book Life Reviews editor's pick and indie spotlight and placed second in contemporary poetry at the Bookfest Spring 2023. His poems have been nominated for the Pushcart and Best of the Net Prizes. And Bruce has been involved with so many great things, so we're going to talk to Bruce and get his uh, take on all that stuff. Thanks for being here, Bruce. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, a double thanks for uh, filling in for a last-minute convers- uh, conversation, a last-minute cancellation. I appreciate that. No problem. Yeah. It worked out good because um, you've been, you know, very uh, patient, uh, waiting for a scheduled show, and... Uh, we have one. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to be here. Yes. Thank you again. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about your background. I mean, you've been very busy. You've been published quite a few places, uh, according to what you've shown me. Um, just take me back, uh, you know, where you, if you're interested in talking about it, where you grew up, um, you know, and everything. So start with that, where you grew up. Sure. Uh, like many writers, where I grew up is part of my work. Of course Especially it is. part yeah. of my first book. I grew up in Nebraska. Wow. And uh, came, went to college there, came to New York as a CPA. Mm-hmm. And after about 10 years in accounting, which included some time with the UN in Rome, I went to grad school and got an MFA. Well, why did you, uh, speci- I, mean, I guess maybe the market was better for that uh, for the, that job or you just... Just sheer life experience. Right. I, I was on the yuppie track in okay. Manhattan right. and I was like, let's get out of this for a bit. And my no, fo- I mean coming from Nebraska. Oh, uh, I just wanted to come to New York mostly because I was very interested in writing right. and culture. And um, in the 70s, when I came here, I think there was a bigger divide between places like Nebraska and places like New York before okay. the internet and so forth. So um, it really felt to me like this was the place to go. Right. And so I... But you, did you have a job lined up or you... I did, yeah. Okay. I interviewed only for New York jobs right. when I was in college. I was right. in business school, so I came with what was then Pricewaterhouse. So okay. I'm very bougie. It's very interesting. Um, that So you were also at that time interested in writing or something you developed later? No, I was... Uh, I took business writing in college and then over the summer that faculty member helped me with a novella I was mm-hmm. working on. Huh. I, I'd go out on audit trips and I'd type up stories. What was the, the novella hotel. about? It was about my college friends okay. and uh, a plot I devised from from that. Right. Uh, prior to college, did you show interest in writing? Uh, All the time. Okay. Yeah. I was a journalist in high school. Um, I was submitting poetry to the New I Yorker see. at that right. time. So, <laughs> so. Um, why uh, the did you do the business uh, side of life because you wanted to make money? You knew poets didn't make money. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. You know, at the time, it was because uh, I went into college without the proper preparation for an arts degree. I didn't have chemistry. I didn't have some math. Huh. I didn't have a foreign language. This was all a counseling problem. Okay. Um, so I had to go into business school. I was trying to be a lawyer at that time. And um, once I got into that, uh, it gave me, I knew I wanted mobility. I right. wanted a ticket to go somewhere. And accounting served that really, really well. You said you wanted to be a lawyer? 
at the, well, business is a pre prerequisite sometimes mm -hmm. for law sure, school. Right. So one of my ambitions, I was going to go into some kind of grad school. Okay. At one time, I was going to be a lawyer. Did you go to grad school? Uh, I went to NYU in theater, actually, oh, okay. <laughs> and dramatic writing. Okay, interesting. So now how did the theater thing pop up? Well, um, I had started writing for theater while I was living in New York and did more of it in Rome and applied to NYU's dramatic writing program. Okay, so you went to, into theater as a writer, not as an actor. Exactly. My first job was as a literary manager hmm. for Manhattan Theater Club. Right. And I was what's called a dramaturg, which is like an editor in a book company. Okay. Uh, picking plays, working with writers to uh, shape their plays and so forth. And I did that for a long time. And uh, then I was a theater manager at Signature Theater. I was wow. the managing director there here in New York. And then I went into nonprofit as a head of a service organization at the time called National Corporate Theater Fund. Okay which raised corporate contributions for major regional theaters. So I went back into the business side of things wow. on that side. Uh, so You know, it's not often you run across somebody who's a good artist, and you have two arts that you uh, are, were involved with, and also have the business side of it. That's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah. It, it, I, working on The Elk and the Glade, really, that paid off. Right. <laughs> Mostly the project management side, but I think... Um, the way the, the writing business as I see it now works, and I saw this as when I was working with playwrights too, writers have to have a lot of skill sets right. to make it. They uh, have to be very political. They have to uh, be very yeah. personable. Right. They have to be persistent. They uh -huh. have to be organized. Uh, and it's very challenging when they're missing some of those categories. Right. And the very successful writers were covered a lot of bases in their skills. Probably the same with uh, a fine artist too, uh, to some degree, uh, right? When you yeah. Say, I mean, I mean, there's there's business in every creative um, in, endeavor. I mean, I, I went to school, I went to Brute College, and studied uh, business. Uh, it's, it was called the uh, what was it called? Management of musical enterprises. Because cool. I knew that I, I wanted to be involved with music, but I didn't 100% know that I could actually make a living doing that. So I figured it would I would do the business thing too. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, if you're looking for a background, there's several ways to go about life, you know, to get that covered early or mm -hmm. come back to it later. Right. Um, but because I went from Pricewaterhouse to a publishing company. Okay. And to get closer to writing and so forth, and right. was, which is always my core interest. Right. So, so I retired in 2020. Oh. And since then, that's when I've really focused on writing okay. poetry. So. Right. Uh, I retired right into the pandemic, which wow. was great timing yeah. for someone in the theater. The, uh -huh. the sector right. has sure. suffered still. So you've from been that. so you've been in theater all this time since the late eighties. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, so that's when I really started writing in earnest. Right. And both of the books, uh, The Elk and the Glade and Good Housekeeping, have come out of that uh, period. Do you miss the theater? I go a lot. I, right. I miss aspects of my job. It was a fun job because mm -hmm. we did a lot of corporate entertaining. We did galas. I got to interact with a lot of very uh, wonderful people uh, on all sides of things. Our board, sure. the theater leaders, the right. artists that we worked with. Um, so I really will always love theater enormously as a, both a participant and as a sometime as an, an audience member. Um, and I, it, it breaks my heart to see what some of the theaters we work with are going through now. We're sure. Closing their stages, stopping performances for a year, well, now you have cutting that. off staff. I got mean, the and, and is, is the actor, the, actor, uh, the uh, writers and acting uh, um, strike 
just for movies? Or? That's film and TV. Yeah, just yeah. film and TV, right. Yeah, that might but the, but actually help theater a bit because some actors on strike may come back and do theater right. while they're sure. while on strike. Right, got to find something to do, right? But on the other hand, so many actors depend on film and TV work to sustain their theater That's, work. Right. It, it's so symbiotic sure. and we're losing one half of right. that. Right, right. But... Um, in this environment, um, I fully support both the Writers Guild, which is on strike, and SAG-ACTRA because um, there's such an imbalance between capital and labor. As right. an accountant, I can say that. Yeah. Um, and you have to have you know where strong the money is organizations <laughs> to stand up to strong centralized capital. Right. So, uh, and it's not at all Marxist. It's actually, you know, Henry Ford always believed in the middle class, and we have eviscerated the middle class right. because they don't have anyone standing up for them. And finally, Fran Drescher mm-hmm. and people that. like that yes. are standing up for right. everyone. And I think everyone will gain right. from this process, but it will be very painful. Right. Unless Hollywood just goes all AI. <laughs> well, it's going to drive a lot of directions, you know, right. but we can go on to that. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, different, that's a different topic. Yeah. yeah. I saw something that was an act, uh, uh, supposed to be a, 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 an act, uh, a scene, uh, by an actor, and I, I almost knew right away it was AI. It just didn't have the real feel to it, you know. Yeah, but we're in such early days. Well, it's true too. Eventually, it's a true, yeah. true threat yeah. to There's, to everything. Right. All right. Well, um, that's we could do a whole podcast just on AI. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you've been published in a lot of places. Were um, all those years or before you retired and you concentrated on poetry, were you trying to be published as a poet? Or Yes, yeah. My first publication was about five years ago now. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and uh, that poem will be in Good Housekeeping. Okay. Uh, and it came about because I met the editor at a pen conference and they were putting one of their first issues together. So before five years ago, you, you hadn't been published as a poet? No. So, but were you writing poetry? I was writing, yeah. Right. Not, not heavily submitting, but doing some. Right, yeah. right. And um, do you, were you doing features, open mics, or? Well, let me, uh, my entry to poetry, I started by taking a couple workshops okay. at Poets House, at okay. 92nd Street Y, right. with uh, Rowan Ricardo Phillips, Alex Dimitrov, Jericho Brown, wonderful, wonderful poets. But my entry to poetry was through one person, which was Lynn McGee. I met mm-hmm. her at a party. And she introduced me to her reading series called Luna Walk. Okay. Where was that? That was uh, running around some bars in this area, actually, at that time. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was called Walk because it went to different places? Luna. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> right. so. Right. But most reader series are itinerant, a bit itinerant. And then I met other poets like Susanna Case, who introduced me to Brownstone Poets, Patricia mm-hmm. Carragon. That's how I met right. Roxanne Hoffman at okay. Poets Wear Prada. Um, and then also I met people with the Hudson Valley Writers Center, and I've taken a lot of online courses there. Uh, and uh, so the, the whole world opened up really through meeting one person, who, and Lynn very generously you know, introduced me or got me into these things. And when I was writing The Elk in the Glade, she saw some of the early poems and said, this is, this is something you need to pursue. So right. she's been a wonderful mentor to me and has really led to some of the things that have happened. Cool. Um, you want to you want to read some? Um, let me read something from the Elk in the Glade, and then okay. I'll tell you the story about this. So, this book came out last year in conjunction with the show of the paintings of Jenny Hicks, the first museum show ever in Nebraska. Huh. 
So because that was coming up, I wanted to get the book out, so I published it myself, and I did a tour. Let me take a look. I did a tour of it in Nebraska in six cities. Uh, the show opened at the museum. It's called the Dawson County Historical Society Museum, and they pulled together 31 of her paintings. So she was my great-grandmother. Oh. She was a pioneer in Nebraska, came out, lived in a saw Is that one of her paintings This on is one of her paintings. Can I take a look? And there's some others inside. Right. And she made her living in the latter part of her life selling landscapes out of her living room in a little village in Nebraska called Farnham. Huh. And so we had a family reunion in April and a big tour there. And it's saw like all it's like paintings. real like old, uh, you know, looking, you know, what with the West in old times. A lot right? of it was, but her, her specialty was mountainscapes, which okay. are not a Nebraska thing. She uh -huh. would paint from postcards, calendars, other images, right. and create these oil images. How big were these uh, paintings? The size is on there. I think that's oh. about two by 18, you know, 24 by 18 or something okay. like that. And some of the bigger ones uh, she made for her daughters were quite large. Right. So was she re renowned in, in Nebraska? Uh, uh, yes, quite a bit. We, we put out a call for pictures, and many people brought their Jenny Hicks pictures to the show. Right. So she died in 1977. I was 21. And I grew up with her, mm -hmm. um, visited her a great deal, right. and remember her very well. And she would tell me stories. Her daughters, my grandmother and her sisters, would tell me stories. And so that's what went into this book. So the book, is uh, all the poetry in the book is related to her to, artwork? To Jenny and her life. That's a great tribute to, to your grandmother. Thank that's you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And the combination of the paintings, which really bring to life her images and mm -hmm. her talents, and the story has really pulled together a lot right. of attention for her. What was she wonderful. like? She was so sweet. Mm -hmm. You know, she she was um, very perceptive, very intuitive, very humble about her painting. I mean, you would think that she took in sewing the way she treated it. And she right. had been a seamstress in her youth. So to me, she was like a seamstress, but she painted. So Did she, she had that service mentality. She, right. If people liked a picture and wanted a copy, she'd make a copy. Oh, okay. If they had a postcard, they wanted a painting, she'd make the painting. Cool. Did she study art or was self-taught? She studied in Cleveland, where she initially was from, okay. uh, when she was a late teens, early mm -hmm. 20s. She spent the year 1900 visiting in Cleveland. Wow, okay. And that's part, that story is told in the book as well. But oh. as far as we know, I think she had one lesson, one series of lessons at that right. time, and I don't know if she ever studied Okay, again. well, I'm excited to hear it. So this poem is called Small White House in the Small Town, and it kind of captures my memory of her All when right. I was a little boy. Right. Small white house in the small town on the High Line. Jenny tells how Horace, her father, dug the first well. They came out from Ohio betting on hope. Because father was a carpenter, the Saudi had rare wood-framed windows, windows battered hard in 88. Blizzards were a fact of life in Farnham, Moorfield, Curtis, Maywood, and beyond the small towns of the High Line. Left her heart back in Ohio. First her favorite brother, then a lover. Returned to Nebraska, the High Line, married old and had three girls, Esther, Dorothy, and Ruth. But it was Ohio where she learned to paint oils, painted everything that was not High Line, purple mountains, blue lakes, green trees, elk, lions, sailboats, stones, cottages nestled, copied from calendars, postcards, magazines, and sold for a few dollars to view-starved farmers and their wives on the brown prairies. She doesn't tell how husband killed farming, not even 60, just as he got off his knees from 29. After one farm gone, him dead, last farm sold, she moved into the small white house in the small town. 
a house too cold for winters, so she migrated among those daughters and their silent husbands. Couldn't wait to return across the High Line, home to the small white house in the small town each spring, and open the studio in the pantry. Smock and white paint tubes, canvases, the smell of baking bread and turpentine, a dwindling paradise as friends die off, dumping autumn ashes on the daffodils, daughters getting older, sons-in-law suffer her still. Home is the small white house in the small town. Paintings hung in homes across the land, a Nebraska grandma Moses telling tales to children, now almost deaf to their voices. She gazes out the south window, her brown eyes assay the light. Sun sets and splits on the blade of the high line. Farnham, Moorfield, Curtis, Maywood, and beyond, the small white house in the small town. That's beautiful. That's a really nice uh, remembrance. Um, so are they all the poems kind of tied together to some degree, or is it different? They jump around through time. One right. of them is an ekphrastic poem about one of her pictures. Mm -hmm. um, and some cover some stories from her daughters. Each of her daughters had distinctive experiences that go into this, too. They very much supported her career. But she eventually sold a 1,000 paintings. Wow, that's a lot. That went all over the country. Huh. And um, so she had a wonderful career. And the museum show uh, brought such visibility but with the family reunion and everything around it I did where, where uh, was the museum in Lexington Nebraska Lexington. which is the county seat of Farnham okay. the county that Farnham is in right um, and then is I, it Lexington a fairly large town or uh, what's it like it's probably one of the 15th largest towns in the state okay. um, it does it, it's uh, an industrial town in the sense that it has a very large uh, Hormel plant huh. and uh, mostly though farming right. and uh, but I was able to uh, present the book at the library in my hometown, the Willa Cather Center, two museums, uh, Barnes & Noble in Lincoln, cool. Bookworm in Omaha. Right. I had a very yeah. nice tour nice. with, with what, the book. What, um, how did this come about for you to do this? To do the book? Or yeah, the, the book. Um, like I said, I, sp I wrote a couple poems, um, and uh, Lynn McGee was telling me to, to stick with it, so mm -hmm. I did. I just started collecting the memories I had from wow. what she told me. Right. And I was also wanting to get, these, now that I so was retired. So these are just memories you had that, that stuck with you? Or mm -hmm. you yeah. Didn't, you didn't have things written down over the years about it? or. Well, when I was a kid, when she told me stuff, I would write it down, oh. which is why I remember it. so cool. It. And you kept it. No, oh, I no, didn't just, keep just it, but the, the act, act of, of writing, writing it down. Right, right. And, you know, I wanted to be a published biographer at 10 years old when oh, she really? told me these. I thought okay. that well, was Well, this is like a biography, but it's a poetic. It is. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> a few, 60 years yeah. later, yeah. Um, and so that happened. Then I was also in conversations with museums because I knew that with a new focus on primitive art or um, outsider art, that there could be interest in, in these paintings from their aesthetic value and also the, uh, the life of the artist, mm -hmm. how Jenny's work um, was driven by basically financial need, but she kept her price, you know, three or four, ten dollars a picture. And how that played out in the rural areas of the state where people could have oil paintings on their walls wow. with the new electric light that the sure. REA right. brought to the right. farm, right. Um, that there's a cultural history to this sure. that uh, people became very interested in. And, uh, and also the familial history, you know, hundreds of her pictures are in that region. Well, so cool. And, and, and uh, they speak to the, um, the home the, and the, the state. Yeah, and also yeah. I think what comes through in the in the book is 
the way these women and I, as a boy and young man, interacted and mm-hmm. the role they played in my life. Um, I don't really come into the book very much, um, mostly toward the end, just kind of closing <laughs> the ends of how she died and so forth. Right. But it's a story about the storytelling of these women telling me stories uh, right. is the action that holds the book together. Okay. And they were insistent on telling me stories. Every time I saw them, what can we tell you? What can we tell you? Right. And they're just racking their brains to think of stuff that I might want to hear. Do you used to watch her paint? I never did see her paint. Uh-huh. She was winding down as I was younger. Okay. And she was also never, uh, we were there on special holidays or weekends. Right. And she just, we, I was not there on a normal day for right, her. Right, sure, right. Uh, but sense. my cousin, many people painted with her. My, right. my cousin, her granddaughter painted with her. Um, and people I met on the tour, their parents painted with her. So they you said she, she was winding down. So, so later in life, she didn't paint? Yeah, she she was in her late 80s by the time she stopped. Okay. You know, she just right. didn't well, have the eyesight yeah. and sure. so forth. Right. And right. So she, she did it a long be, time. But she lived to be 98. Right. So wow. she had a long life. Yeah. In the last 10 years, she wasn't doing much painting. Right. Um, any other artistic, um, you know, in, in, any other artistic um, influences from your family, like your parents at all? Or my my dad was a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was when I was young what, was what a did homemaker. He, teach? he taught driver's ed industrial arts. But okay. So the shop work, right. definitely. His, he and his father were both shop teachers, mm-hmm. and so carving woodwork was very much a part of. Are his you life. handy? Not at Did all. you learn? <laughs> I, w- I would hold the hammer and get yelled at. That okay. was my role as a child. Right. Um, and my mom was a homemaker, but in high school she had been a theater director. Okay. And um, and has always been very interested in that. But so the theater you got from from your mom. Sort of. To but some degree. I, I grew up in a Carney, which is as a college at the time, is university now had a really good theater program. So I saw a lot of great theater as okay. a teenager. Right. And then in Lincoln, when I went to school there, I followed up. And then it just kind of went into my bones from right. there. I don't know where ancestrally it comes from. Right. Um, what else have you brought that you would like to talk about or read? Well, I think um, part of what I've been thinking about as we're getting the uh, – I want to also say about Elkin and Glade, it is self-published. Um, but I couldn't have done it without Roxanne Hoffman okay. at the Poets Wear Prada. And right. she very graciously – we had agreed that she would do – she and Jack Cooper, her partner, would do good housekeeping okay. before I got the news about the show and started on Elk in the Glade. Uh-huh. So she agreed to postpone good housekeeping, and she was instrumental in helping me go through how to get reviews, Library of Congress, all these wow, logistics of self-publishing. Yeah. So the book could really exist, right. so stores could get it. And I really want to thank her for that. That's and awesome. all of the work we're doing now on trying to get it's, uh, yeah, good housekeeping To self-publish going. and not have any help is, is you know... Yeah, I mean, you can you can do it in a way um, that, it, you know, I, I mean, do another book sometime and just put it on Amazon and that's the end of it. But this book, I wanted to have a particular kind of visibility and sure. availability. Right. And um, so that was that was gratefully happened. So right. Barnes and Noble places, they can order it. Right. And uh, that that takes a special effort because they don't like buying stuff from Amazon where most self-published stuff is. Right. right. So, yeah, I'm self-published on Amazon, too. But I, yeah. I, I put it out and... I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't do s- these things that you're talking about doing. I haven't really tried to get it out there. Sure, well, that's where, you know, yeah. being a producer, I was right. really ready to take on a project sure. like that. And, right. and it's, it's, been, it's been great. Right. So Good Housekeeping. Now, this book, I, I do think that um, The Elk and the Glade is kind of a story about familial love mm-hmm. and past love and how it affects 
all of us as we grow up. Good housekeeping is also about love. And I think it's taken a while. You know, when you write stuff, you don't think about that. You know, but as we're marketing it, I'm thinking, what are the things, what are the common threads, what are the themes? And good housekeeping is about who we are domestically and internationally, how we treat our families, our lovers, our world, mm -hmm. the other people with us on the planet. There's some um, eco-poetry, love poetry, um, and a lot about housekeeping because I think that's a metaphor for how we care for ourselves and each other. Right. And the love we give ourselves and each other is often expressed through housekeeping. Ah, interesting. Right. So that's kind of the continuing thread of this uh -huh. work. Now, these poems are much more future-looking. Um, they're much more directly about my life. I've been uh, partnered for 41 years, married for 13 years, and um, we've lived abroad together, and, and Pierce and I have had you know, a wonderful life together, uh -huh. and there's some elements of that in it. And, and 41 years together? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. How'd you meet? I, we met at Julius Bar, which is a classic gay bar in the okay. village, uh -huh. um, an historic bar, um, and uh, we, but we were introduced by a friend, so mm -hmm. it was all very proper. Right. Um, and so, uh, is your husband in the arts? He was an IT, and he's retired from uh, Paramount. Was his last uh, big assignment. Okay. But no, he he was an English major, however, and has a master's in English, and uh, reading and literature are one of the things that we do share. Cool. And, and I tend to be a literary person. I'm not so much a performer right. as, a, as a kind of literary, as you can imagine, as a play dramaturg, sure. literary manager right. kind of person. All right. Um, did you want to read something? From, I mean, yeah. whatever you want to read, you, you tell well, me what you'd I, like. One of the other things I do, by the way, are haiku. Oh, oh yeah, I see that um, uh, on, your, <laughs> on, your, on your page. And I wanted <laughs> to read a haiku that's going to be in Good Housekeeping because it's about drumming. Okay. And I know you're a uh, drummer. Cool. So uh, these are, I keep them every day, and so they're, they're in good housekeeping uh, as dated, uh, their titles are their dates. This is 12-31-2020. Right. Rain drumming the roof. Snare stuck in farewell tempo. A year in retreat. We sometimes read haiku twice. Okay. Rain drumming the roof. Snare stuck in farewell tempo, a year in retreat. So what, what is it, tell me about more about that. So it's the sound of rain on the roof, right. like a snare uh -huh. drum, sure. you know, okay. kind of stuck. Right. And then this is like eh, a year in retreat. You know, it, it's been a year now with COVID. Okay. That was COVID really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So how much did uh, COVID, um, especially in the early months, affect your writing? <clears throat> oh, it was... I hate to say this because of all the suffering. It was wonderful for my writing. Right. I was queued up. My my retirement I'd anticipated for several months, right. and um, I'd already started developing uh, writing habits uh -huh. on staycations and things like sure. that. I just switched into high writing mode and, right. and got a lot of publications right after it started. You had the time, and there was less distraction. And much yeah, else to do and it. people were hungry for... Right. Um, <clears throat> so this is one that got published quite quickly. Okay. Um, it's called Station Square, and this is published by North of Oxford. This will be in good housekeeping. It's also uh, part of a Stanford uh, educational program on COVID. I live in Forest Hills, by the way, so okay, this is that's good to know. actually set there. <laughs> Station Square. I will walk to Station Square, though I won't take the train, or check out new cocktails at the bar, 
I won't worry about departures or arrivals, weather delays or locked waiting rooms. I haven't looked at a schedule for weeks. Tickets crumple in my pocket. The trackside trees are leafing out without me. The funny man who pees all the time is no longer a comfort station customer. The pushy lady who grabs the first seat must now roll easily from kitchen chair to couch, I suppose. We gaze at screens, not out windows of the empty trains passing by without us, through a region frozen in emergency, of seething hospitals and blinded shops. Trains clack over the heads of parents juggling children and accounts unaided and without success. Too much out of reach, too much pass them by, too many cash earners gone. Their losses will pull the spikes from all our rails, knock the train from the trestle, and there will be nothing to wait for coming round the bend. I turn back down the silent streets and walk home from Station Square. Oh, cool. I like that one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's coming out in 20, the book's coming out in 2024. Yes. Um, how, f- how finished is it? Is the writing done now? You're just like piecing it together, it's, or yeah, you're still going to add? No, to we're it? we're done. It's it's. Uh, I'm reading from the proofs actually. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do is to first of all see what further develops with the elk and the glade. Right. Um, and also, though, the big thing is to try to see what responses some of our early review requests will get okay. and how to position it so that it sells. Um, right. And um, that's that's really tricky, as you know, with poetry. It's um, it's a it's an uphill battle. I look at the rankings, even of poets that I really admire, of mm-hmm. how their books rank on Amazon, right. and uh, even within their categories, it's really really hard to make up to make headway. So, um, and I think we're still kind of exploring the ways to look at the book and right. how to talk about it that will help people understand what it is. Okay. Um, so. So that's uh, part of what we're going through now, and we'll be timing this based on how all the other developments play out. Right. It's an art I'm learning as we go sure. from the from Roxanne Hoffman. Right. So it's <laughs> good that you have a mentor. I'm very very grateful. For right. That. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So do you want me to read another one? From yeah. That? Sure. Um, I could read um, the first poem that I published, which is oh, a form that I do quite a bit of. It's called a haiban, which is uh, basically a prose poem followed by a haiku. Mm -hmm. And this is called Toshiko's Cup. So they're connected. So there's the same poem, but the haiku's at the end. Okay. Um, And Toshiko is Toshiko Tokeetsu, who was a Japanese-American potter, legendarily famous, beautiful work. She has a huge um, bowl. It's about five feet tall right now in the gallery, in the main gallery when you come in to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh. Very, uh-huh. very beautiful work. So Is that a permanent? That's uh, one thing they ro- they own it, but they rotate they rotate yeah, that sure. section. It's a cer- right. it's the Asian ceramic, the, oh, the contemporary ceramics section. So this is called Toshiko's Cup. The smaller the bowl, the more precious the tea. Or is that just a rumor, an echo from Rikyu's suicide? The exquisite dissolves in the mundane, leaving the residue of this wave-washed vessel, a paradox solved only by use. And then this is the haiku. Rainbow void in clay, fired to hold rare infusions, sipped by refined lips. Oh, I love that. It's, it's really cool. I, 
I don't know if I've seen that before where there's a poem followed by a haiku and they're connected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the artist um, is, is gone? Uh, she passed, passed away? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And Rikyu is the, is the uh, Japanese historic figure who really developed the, what we think of now as the tea ceremony hmm. in about the 1600s. Wow, okay. So that's a reference to, to his work. Right. Um, so you saw this uh, in, the, in the museum and, it, and uh, decided to, like you were inspired to write about it or how did that come about? Well, um, I think I was, I was taking one of my classes I took and one of my influences is um, Mark Wunderlich at the 92nd Street Y and I wrote this in one of his workshops. I forget the exact prompt, mm -hmm. um, but I have a Toshiko Toketsu cup, oh. which is right. multicolored like that. So right. I, I think it might have been something like heading toward an ekphrastic poem, uh -huh. maybe. This maybe was the prompt. Ekphrastic is a poem about an art object. Um, so that may, I, as I recall, that's where that started. But it definitely was inspired by Mark Wunderlich, who's a wonderful poet mm -hmm. in, in the class I took with him. It's cool. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, I I didn't plan to do a podcast, <laughs> and I, and as I said um, to you earlier, um, I'm kind of new to poetry, and you know, I was in bands for 40 years, but I was the drummer. I, I didn't even write song lyrics really. Uh, but then I I, I, I came here uh, to see a friend do a reading, and uh, it kind of kickstarted this whole thing. And, and that's when I found out the podcast studio was available, and I said, oh, I'll do a podcast. And I have to say, you know, it's great having uh, to talk to other people like you because I, I didn't realize how many types of poetry there is. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if that sounds dumb. No, no, because <laughs> I tell you, you know. when we lived in Rome, one of our friends came and we had a huge bookshelf. Um, and he goes, you guys, you have no poetry on this bookshelf. Huh? I didn't read poetry at all. Okay, so I'm not alone in that. And, That's yeah, That's and the only way I started right. was Kathleen, uh, Jackie Kenny Onassis died, and she had Kafavi's poem Ithaca uh -huh. read at her funeral. Right. And I ran out, got a copy of his book, read it on the plane to Los Angeles. We lived in Los Angeles for a okay. while, so I was commuting right. out there. Sure. And uh, it's, oh, you could do that. Mm -hmm. And then gradually over the next, it took me another 20 years before I really started taking it seriously. But it's, oh. I think if I had known earlier in life right. the varieties of poetic expression, the right. possibilities, you know, I can, because Elk in the Glade is very narrative. Mm -hmm. um, this poem, Toshiko's Cup, is very lyrical. Right. You know, you can go so many directions, sure. so many lengths. Right. You know, three lines, one line. There are monocus, mm -hmm. haikus in one line. Right. Um, two books. You know, epics. Right. And uh, the, it's so exciting because there, so many other writing structures are very limited. Right. And so, so um, your your the uh, your book about your grandmother is a very specific uh, form of inspiration. Um, and good housekeeping is another one. But um, generally speaking, besides those two. Where does your inspiration come from? Like when you sit down to write, is it just something that, like for me, um, I, I'm going to read something a little, in a little bit and it's um, inspired by a scene or uh, uh, the depicti depiction of a scene of somebody and, and I just so something about that that stuck with me. Or sometimes it could be a movie or a news story or, you know, or a song. Uh, for you, where, where generally speaking, is it all over or is it just, you know, it's it's all over, but what I really respond to are prompts mm -hmm. that I make up or somebody 
gives me or I find somewhere. Right. Write a poem about an object. Mm -hmm. Write a poem that has a color in it. Right. Um, Leanne O'Connor runs this uh, the East Village Wordsmiths at the uh, third at the book club bar, mm -hmm. and her theme every month is a color. Okay. And I've been amazed at what I've written to that kind of a prompt. Right. But a lot of it comes from being, you know, just what happens, right. you know, stories or whatever. Um, I was in Nebraska, and the state poet there, Matt Mason, held a workshop, and he said, try to write something that has, his prompt was interweaving silly lines with meaningful lines right. to give more emotional variety okay. to your work. And I wrote, uh, I think, a pretty decent poem about video games that I don't even do. Right. But I have all these thoughts about them sure. that I discovered writing <laughs> the poem. Right. And it was around the time of the um, the espionage, you know, the release of State Secrets through a video game platform. So that's kind of how I work. Is right. I like the, to know kind of where I'm heading on a, an artistic, what's the prompt artistically, and then the subject will fill it in. Okay, right. You know, I don't think, I think I've only done one poem by a prompt. It was from uh, somebody who I went to culinary school with, um, and she uh, she reads my poems. She likes my poetry. And it was during the, the peak. Uh, she's African-American, if I should point that out. And uh, she prompted, she saw something I wrote about the so a couple years ago about the social, um, you know, what was happening with, you know, George Floyd and all mm -hmm. these other terrible cases. And she gave me a prompt to write something about that, and I did it. But when you do, it actually came out really good. I'm really proud of it, but I think that's the only time I did a prompt. I never took a class like, like you're talking about. When, when they give you a prompt, how, do you sit there and go, oh my God, I, I, can't, I can't think of one word about this prompt? Or does it, like, have you done it enough that it, it, it comes pretty quickly? It comes pretty quickly, and actually in theater writing, we use them too. Okay. You know, write a three write a three character scene that ends in one character walking out of the room. So you kind of had a little a background of, in doing this. That's the kind of scene work right. exercise you get in right. sure. drama school. Good. Okay. So I that so, so you had that background. Yeah, and I think a lot of writers, and not everybody, of course, but a lot of writers love the box. Okay. And they like to break it. They like to break down. You know, a lot of people are doing fabulous things with sonnets right now. Okay. Um, so forms and prompts are really wonderful springboards, right. I think. And you kind of get into a mindset of rising to them. You know, they bring out something that, because poetry works best when it's not cognitive conscious work. It's right. beyond that. Right. Something you could say spiritual or whatever. Right. And prompts help you get there. Okay. Even, even rhyme. Jericho Brown says that rhyme helps you break out of your conceptual habits into something that's much more inspired, intuitive. You would never get there, and no one would ever hear this unless you have to rhyme, make a rhyme work. Got it. It's those structural limitations are where the real soaring aspects of poetry, I think, are found. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll read one. Great. And I was, what I was talking about, um, the book is um, some, uh, a singer-songwriter that I knew in the 90s, um, I used to book shows for people living with AIDS in hospitals mm -hmm. and long-term care facilities. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, that was my job. It was wow. terrific uh, experience, and was at the kind of the height of, of the peak of of the AIDS epi epidemic. Um, I'm proud that I got to do that. And Howard Fishman was one of the people I met through that. 
And he wrote a book uh, called To Anyone Who Ever Asks The Life, Music, and Mystery of uh, Connie Converse. Uh, she was a folk singer, um, kind of obscure. Um, and then, uh, but she was kind of ahead of her time in style, and her music was very sophisticated. Uh, um, you can hear her music. There's not a lot of it recorded, but um, there was one scene in the book that kind of inspired me. So um, this one's called Depth of Emotion. The narrow ledge was a cold and unforgiven, precarious place. She took a long drag of her cigarette as she balanced herself and let it go out into the dark and heavy city air above the traffic on Broadway and the people walking by oblivious that she was there. She had removed herself outside of company, separate in her trance as the waning hours of the night drifted and clouds shielded the light from the moon, casting no shadows nor illumination on her lonely state and stirred her inner thoughts that hardly ever rested. There would be words typed on paper that would become songs, but for now she was just outside, looking into a room of friends with whom she didn't feel she belonged. That really wasn't what kind of place for this poet. I'm sorry, let me read that one again. There really wasn't that kind of place for this poet whose depth of emotion and intellect was so evident and strong. Mm. So that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, so, um, you know, we're pretty far into the program. I want to make sure that there's something that you either want to talk about or read that's important to you before we sign off. Um, I just want to uh, give folks a way to stay in touch. That's and, great. And um, you can contact me through my website, which is Bruce Whitaker, B-R-U-C-E-W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E.com. Okay. You can join the Brewsters and uh, the whole good housekeeping journey as we come along. Uh, July is Culinary Arts Month, so if you join my mailing list now, I will send you my Virgil Thompson salad recipe. Virgil oh. Thompson was a composer, <laughs> okay. critic. Right. He knew Gertrude Stein, did an opera with her. Um, and I'll tell you the story about how I got that recipe. Okay. So that's if you sign up at BruceWhitaker.com, you'll get a recipe for a wonderful salad. Uh, I'm going to be part Can of... Can you just give us... I know you don't want to give it away, but just no, give us like why that salad is special. Just say it's apples, mushrooms, and watercress, and oh. that's uh, a combination I've never seen anywhere else. Oh, the mushrooms delicious. are raw or roasted or... I have to sign up. <laughs> um, and I'll be at East Village Wordsmiths, Leanne Connors series at the book club bar on July 25th at 8 p.m. The theme for that night is gold. And I'm also going to be reading in a couple of weeks at the New York Poetry Festival with Poets Wear Prada, July 29th at okay. 2 p.m. at the Algonquin Stage on Governor's Island. Oh, cool. So those are my commercials for what's uh, coming up in the Bruce world. Nice. Um, Instagram or any other social media? I'm world? on Facebook uh -huh. and Instagram. I post uh, the haiku there every day. Okay. I see, I, uh, we're Facebook friends, but yes. I'll, I'll look for your Instagram page. Yeah, it's the same, the same ones go. Okay. Yeah. So and, that, and, right. so, yeah. and uh, I don't do much else, so you won't be harassed by my uh, food <laughs> shots or vacations right, or right. any of that stuff. I don't do a whole lot, a little bit. Um, so we, we have time for, for another poem, if you'd like. Okay. Um, let me see here. I think there's one that I want to read, which is a seasonal poem called Midsummer Midlife. Let me just find it here. By the way, um, have we, I mean, I'm trying to think, have we ever been at the same reading together? I'm not sure, Pete. I, yeah. I've been, I do, like I say, Brownstone, I do KGB. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, 
those are the standard ones that I okay. do. Also, I want to give a shout out to poets of Queens, Elena Jennings and Jared Belloff are really doing great work uh -huh. in, in Queens, where I'm from. And, and do you and have any features coming up? Um, not well. I will be featured at Governor's, Governor's Island, Island. Right, and right. Uh, I think it's technically a feature at uh, at the at the East Village Wordsmiths, but nothing beyond that okay. at the moment. Okay. So here's Midsummer Midlife. Come pillow against me and let's savor a Netflix. The bed is stripped to sheets. The AC catches up. A sexy show and your weight on my chest launch beta video memories that have outlived their player. Fuzzy snatches of escapades, glances across fog-filled rooms lit by smoldering flickers of bring it on. Halo, your face lit by the screen. That detonate under my skin this Saturday night that descends from velvet ropes, then chains, then spiked collars. The tie that binds, confines, that couch. Now we leave parties early or blow them off. We turn away from other greener mouths. Back to now, yes, scan the menu. This is still the one recommended for you. <laughs> I like that a lot. So that's again from Good Housekeeping. Cool. Uh, so I want to wish you um, further success in your debut uh, novel. I mean, not novel, book, sorry. Uh, the Elk in the Glade. And, um, you know, keep us posted on the actual, is there, there's not a, it's just next year, you know, yeah, you don't know yeah, exactly no, we when. Sign up on my waiting, on my so mail list and you'll definitely out. be uh, uh, trumpeting, you know, the, the subways will rumble when we announce uh, the date. Spring or? Hopefully early in the year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, great. Um, so it's been, first of all, again, I want to thank you for jumping in at the last minute. I appreciate that. And uh, it's great to meet you and, uh, and, and. Hear more of your your poetry. I've I've been seeing your haikus, but uh, it's nice to see all the depth. And I love what you read today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great to talk to you, Andy. Hear your poetry too. Thanks. Thank you. So um, you've been listening to storytelling on Orchard Street. Um, I'm your host, Pete Salamita. Um, again, we're in the uh, bookstore P and T Knitwear. Right up front, you can see us uh, if you walk past the bookstore. <laughs> it's a big window. Uh, and my guest was, was terrific. I loved having you on, Bruce Whitaker. I want to thank you again. And uh, everybody, check out his, his work. It's fantastic. And um, hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you all, or you'll hear us another time. Thank you so much for listening and watching. <laughs> <laughs>